You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back. I'm Christian Terbish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here on SiriusXM. Today we're talking about surgery, and uh, I am somewhat overwhelmed because I have two brain surgeons, two neurosurgeons on my show in the first half of the show. I talked with Dr. Georges Blakarian. It is now my great pleasure of welcoming my second guest, uh, fr- I, and I kid you not, literally fresh from the OR, Dr. Neil Malhotra. Uh, he's a professor and neurosurgeon right here at Penn and the co-director of Penn's Translational Spinal Research Lab. Uh, welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. Uh, Neil, that was true. You're literally fresh out of the OR. What, what did your day look like today before uh, coming to the show? So today is an operative day. So um, I'm doing five operations today, so shorter operations as compared to the case that we're talking about on this call. Um, so basically doing an operation and then you know dictating the operation, meeting with the family, and then going right to the next one. So tell us about what it takes to be a surgeon. I mean, uh, we talked with a previous guest a little bit about the brain versus the hand, the dexterity. Are, are, you, are you also good at fixing a bike or making something with your hands? Are you kind of a, a handy type of person to say it this way? As it turns out, I am to some degree. There is some, some data about that, about the use of one's hands and that, you know, people that use their hands regularly in their hobbies are people that tend to be um, good surgeons. And the area of the brain that develops control of the hands is is larger and, and more active. Um, uh, in my case, uh, an example of that is that I've, I've just completed, after promising for many, many years, I just completed a dining room table that I built for my wife. How many years have you been doing surgery? So I've been a neurosurgeon, in, in, including my training, uh, for 18 years. And the, the training is uh, seven years. How have procedures, surgical interventions changed over these 18 years? I mean, in 18 years, I guess in any field, certainly in medical technology, is, is, is a lot of, lot of time. What is, what's different today that we would have not recognized in an OR 15 years ago? Well, so cer- certainly in some areas, the changes have been dramatic. So um, some of that being navigation and the development of robotics. So within navigation, the ability to target the lesion, um, which reduces, for example, the size of an incision, the amount of time um, sort of addressing tissues around the lesion and being able to focus rather directly on the lesion because we can get there very quickly, and that is very helpful for certain cases. As an academic now, you are, unlike our previous guest who was in private practice, uh, you have also research and academic duties. Uh, so, so how do you allocate your time between the time that you're in the OR, you're consulting with their patient family and patient him or herself, you're doing research, you have administrative roles. How do you, how do you allocate your time between these buckets? Uh, certainly by prioritizing things. So, so far and away, the number one priority is patient care. Everything sort of falls behind that. And then we try and schedule out uh, in a way that is, you know, allows us to care for the patients that need us and then block off time subsequent to that to do the other things. So for me, I have days that are generally allocated for surgery, days that are generally allocated to see patients in the office and sometimes do emergency surgeries, and then time for administration and for running the lab. The reason the lab is so important, um, and, you know, and I'm fortunate to have a, a, a big team that works with me in the lab, so even when I'm not there, it's still moving forward. The reason the lab is so important is because the goal of our research is to put us out of business clinically. We want to find solutions that mean we won't need surgical interventions anymore. 
And you spend, I mean, a lot of my friends here at Penn Medicine, they are basically spending like half a day a week in, in the practice and the rest is research time. You have real volume, right? I mean, it sounds like yeah, you're spending at least half of your time in the OR slash yeah, patient it, care. It, it, it tends to be a different model for surgeons than for um, for non-surgeon specialists. So, um, you know, so I'm in the OR basically two full days a week and then, you know, when I'm on call, extra weeks and days. And then I'm in the clinic seeing patients one to two days a week, and so so there's a, a pretty high clinical um, clinical volume uh, that needs to be sustained to care for patients. Does it get us back to the dexterity that if you wouldn't have that volume, you would really like a, be like a marathon runner who hasn't practiced for a while? Is, is is that volume so specific about surgery that maybe in internal medicine it's okay to be a little rusty on the latest things, but in surgery you, you just have to your fingers just have to remember always. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the, the rusty component for the internist. I, I can't really speak to that very well. But to the surgical practice, I, I mean, I think there's increasing literature that say that shows that surgeons who are uh, not operating uh, with any frequency tend to have more problems. So if they're not taking care of a certain type of problem a certain number of times per year, even if they did early in their career, they tend to run into more problems. And that may be a surgical skill problem. That may also be a, a cognitive problem that you're not – you know, thinking about all the issues one can run into and not on top of them before they become an issue. Now, you mentioned, uh, Neil, you mentioned the lab that you're running, that's Penn's Translational Spinal Research Lab. Um, tell us about the translational element about your job. So from an idea that you have or your, your research team has towards actually one day in the clinic happening in the OR, what, what does a journey of an idea look like from kind of the inception to practice? Yeah, so so I think if I I divide my life into five parts, and so sort of three apart three of the parts are what you're asking about. Two of the parts are education and administration, so so teaching, and you know you know uh, helping to run the department. If I think about the three components you're asking about, I have true bench, you know, uh, so so basic research, non uh, you know some animal models, but no no real clear clinical translation in the immediate future. Then translational, which is very much database. We've we've built uh, a, a, a basically a medical record within the medical record to track patients more effectively, so that we can ask questions like the ideas you're talking about about how we can improve care, so improve quality, and then finally clinical practice. So I think all, I, I I play a role in all of those parts. So you know to have uh, the gestation of an idea. So my interest in, is in developing therapeutics to to reconstitute the, the spinal disc to reverse disc degeneration. So, you know, I may be doing that at the bench uh, and in an animal model, while at the same time finding something or a new question that I can then look to the data sets to see if this is an issue in patient care so then I can then go back to the bench and ask the question in a, in a better manner than if I only worked at the bench. Help our listeners to understand what the bench is. So uh, it's not bench pressing, I imagine, right? <laughs> so, so is this literally at the level of uh, a Petri dish? or is Yeah, a, a, yeah. so, so the, the bench is quite literally, yes, it, it, is, it is sort of a, a, a term we use probably, uh, you know, that we should clarify. But um, it is literally the bench. So we have lab benches. So, you know, just the, like the height of your counters in your kitchen, um, where most of our experiments are run. So that may be a mechanical device compressing a tissue to test its ability to mimic a human tissue. Um, it may be, as you said, in a Petri dish, so looking at the ability to sell of cells that we've 
selected for to grow on what is the implant tissue that I'm trying to get to act like a human tissue, um, and you know, and looking at those 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 cells under the microscope. How does the translational process work differently when you're thinking about new drugs or new therapeutics compared to new surgical devices or new surgical techniques? It's my understanding that the former, there's this kind of classic FDA process of building some form of animal models, testing them, phase one, phase two, phase three. But when you find a better way to do an incision, there's a very different way of innovating. Can you, can you just compare those two for us? No, I think that, that, that is true. We, we have the capacity to innovate on a patient level. Um, so for an individual patient as surgeons, um, it's very challenging to do that with, with a drug because the effects of the drug are so unclear until you've used it to treat a highly controlled group of patients to assess its impact. Um, you know, we, we can innovate at the patient level, like the... Um, uh, one of the cases I recently did with uh, with a, a robotic use to to reconstruct the spine subsequent to the resection of a large tumor. So that's something that at the individual patient level, the device has been tested and is FDA approved uh, for one purpose, and we're expanding uh, that tool. So in that in that situation, we might test the tool in a variety of ways first, and then we have an alternative way to do the procedure. So we know that if the tool doesn't work. We can go back to the way we normally do it, um, and if it is effective, then it's re reduced tissue destruction or tissue injury, which makes the surgery better for the patient. So the patients are interested in these opportunities. So it's, it's really a fascinating balance between exploration and exploitation of knowledge in the sense that you're using the same OR and your same time and the same people to some extent to push the frontier but also kind of to deliver the best care for that, that, that patient that you have under your care right now. How, how, is that sometimes getting you into decisions where you feel like, ah, is, I have to find the right balance here? No, I think it has to be a very clear picture. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we ever, I mean, I should speak for myself, I don't do ever, anything ever on the margin. There's no question. There's no gray area. The only things that we're doing when it comes to a patient are things that, that there is some clear data about the potential to help that patient, and we discuss it with that patient. Um, when you're talking about really more experimental, like on the margin in the gray area, that's when, you know, that's the, the, the wonderful thing about having a research lab is that's where you go to ask that question. And until you've sort of proven its capability or really its potential capability, then that you start to move into the translational space, which might be an animal model, and then and then in that case, perhaps go down an FDA pathway. So you mentioned the FDA pathway. Uh, how, how, how does it work on the reimbursement front? Are there situations where you are sometimes, it was an experimental procedures, of course, with the agreement of the patient, but you feel like this is the right care for this patient, but this is not yet reimbursable? Is that a situation where the financials play in? Oh, absolutely, and that is that is a big challenge. Um, you know, you want to be able to move care forward, but a payer, for example, uh, may not want to pay for that care despite evidence suggesting it's helpful. And an example of that within neurological surgery is uh, ultrasound-based approaches to treat cranial lesions. So, you know, patients with uh, tremor disorders might respond really nicely to an ultrasound-developed therapy that's come online in the last, you know, 10 years or so. But because there hasn't been that large trial, the insurer is able to say, well, we're just not going to pay for that care. Um, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow for patients. Um, and, you, you know, they're told, well, you have to do the older, more invasive procedure 
um, because that's what we accept. Um, so that's that's a challenge. It is. I mean, from uh, one of my friends is involved in that procedure as a surgeon. One of your colleagues, the Dr. Gordon Bartol. Yes. And uh, I've. I think it's tricky in surgery, uh, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction on that. Is this idea of a placebo is kind of that we are in in traditional when we give a patient or we? I'm not a doctor. I'm a management doctor. How right? Uh, so, but when when the medical community gives a patient a pill, it is perfectly legit to give the patient just a placebo. With certain procedures where, again, a randomized controlled trial with a placebo control group would also be really interesting to try out. Do you Have you, have you ever done a placebo operation? Can I ask you that so directly? I, I have not, and I'm, I'm generally fundamentally opposed to it because of just what you said. When mm. I introduce risks for a patient, I, I, for me, I want to know that there is potential for benefit. So if I'm doing a placebo operation, there's no potential for benefit, Yes, yet I've introduced risk into the calculation. So in, in Scandinavian countries, they have done placebo surgeries. There's a couple of places around the world, really, that have, whether it's uh, scoping the knee or otherwise, they feel like the evidence that they've gotten from that has been valuable. I'm much more interested in, in uh, propensity uh, scoring matches and um, you know pairing uh, large data sets to existing data sets once you've done a lot of research, for example, that ultrasound that we've discussed, once there's been a ton of research to get you to that point, then treating those patients, giving the opportunity to treat them and give them uh, uh, the potential benefit, and then using either uh, course and exact matching, ideally course and exact mat matching and propensity score matching to find a population similar to them that didn't get the procedure to see if you can prove in, in, a, in an ideal scenario similar to a randomized trial, prove the impact of the intervention. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Neil Malhotra. He's a professor and neurosurgeon right here at Penn and a leader in translational spinal research. And we're talking about kind of what it takes to get the idea from kind of from, from the idea initially to the to the bad side or to the OR. And part of that is really kind of running experiments. And this is when surgery tricky, and I've, I've just learned a ton from Neil on on how to make this happen, how to use data in particular to kind of learn what works and under what conditions it works. Talk a little bit more about kind of basically using data. I understand something. I mean, I've done courses on propensity score matching many years ago, but but just tell us how you've looked at kind of epidemiologically at data from past patients to make judgments of what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, so I think it's, it, it, you know, so, so data, when used for, for good, is a wonderful, wonderful tool as long as we know what its weaknesses are when you look at just large populations. So I consult, as, as much as I've studied these topics, I consult with statisticians. I've built an internship around it so that I have a, a, a direct pathway to sort of uh, high-level statistics. So some questions that we've asked, for example, are um, patients, when they come into the hospital for surgery, the ability, our capacity to predict um, their care course subsequent to surgery. So these are the first steps in really being able to give patients the best picture of what will happen to them. So in this first iteration, we looked at whether we could use variables that exist on presentation to predict what kind of post-operative care the patient will need. Um, multiple studies have shown that patients are much more satisfied if they are, are if their expectations align with what actually happens. So using in, in that particular study, you know, propensity match scoring to try and create a population of patients similar to the patients that we're currently studying to determine if we can effectively predict 
what kind of disposition care they'll need. Do they need just a family member at home? Do they need to go to rehab? Do they need to go to a nursing facility? Um, so it's a powerful tool. And then because it's effective in predicting what will happen with, you know, with these patients, we then can create these automated reports that our physicians on the wards and our nurses can then use to leverage that to enhance that patient's care to get them to the right place quicker. Um, so, I mean, that's, that would be one example. Tell us a little bit about the advancement in robotics. You mentioned earlier on the improved guidance now that you have when the patient comes in. You can basically have you know, a mark on the skull for maybe like a tumor operation specific. Uh, you get some, some, some both preparation and some real-time feedback on where you need to do your kind of movements with your, your instruments. Tell us how, how robotics has changed surgery uh, since you've been around in surgery. Yeah, so robotics, when I started in medical practice, robotics were really, and still are, uh, robotics in its infancy. Um, and we're really, I, I wouldn't even say we're in the robotic phase of surgery, we're in the cobotic phase. I think, um, and what I mean by cobotics is the robot is assisting me to do what I'm really doing with my hands using the robot. With the only real robotic device that is used in any sort of surgical manner also in, in happens to be in neurological surgery, and that's sort of CyberKnife, which was developed by some of my colleagues at Stanford. That's robotics. You provide a program, you plan it out, and the robot does what it's told to do on its own. Most of what we're doing is cobotics, and um, the case that I've referenced in this conversation is resection of a type of cancer where historically um, either the surgery is, is very morbid and very hard for the patient to go through, or they do a treatment that really doesn't give them any chance at a cure. So if we know surgery gives you a chance at a cure, the advantage in, in the case example that I'm speaking about is that robotics or cobotics allows me to do the surgery, in this case, through the patient's mouth in a way that I can't do it with my hands. My hands are too big to fit in the space. And the robot, which um, you know, uh, one of my ENT colleagues is controlling, allows us to get to the space that we need to to be able to do a surgery that allows us to get a cure, uh, but also a recovery rate that's reasonable. So that rather than splitting the face or the jaw that we in a way that we used to do 20 years ago, we do a surgery that now you know four or five months after surgery, the patient's back at work and doing the things they like to do. So that's where I think the the, the current state of of cobotics or robotics is. Is the uh, analogy correct to piloting maybe where there is kind of different levels of, of piloting whereas the, the ones where you literally fly by wire and it's all electronic versus the one basically you have just to control instruments uh, that uh, you're basically using to fly the airplane? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable example. I think the example that, that, um, that your listeners are probably much more familiar with are automobiles. So, you know, right now we have cars that can increasingly do a little bit more of the driving for you. Um, the question is, are they doing it on their own, or are you sort of fully in control and directing them? So, you know, you know, cruise control is sort of perhaps an early, uh, an early cobotic sort of co-pilot assisted intervention, and now we have you know lane changing and you know point to point you know guidance and assistance. I'm thinking of my recent experiment with the autopilot of a Tesla, and I, I hope that your instruments don't start, start beeping and say, Neil, keep your hands on the joystick here. Um, so um, what is, I mean, the way that you introduced Cobotics was it, you, you talked about a phase. Where is, that suggests a certain momentum, right, from that, that robotics is the end game, or did, am I putting words in your mouth that I, you didn't want to say this way? 
Well, I, I would I would say you are correct in, in summarizing some of my thoughts, but I, I, I don't think it will be in everything. I think there are certain procedures or interventions that robotics will give us an advantage. I think if you use uh, the Da Vinci robot, you know, in its development over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, many of the interventions that were, that, you know, were argued to be the future of cobotics or robotics in the way that Da Vinci is used, um, that that would, you know, eliminate the need for surgery. And when we studied this, you know, uh, in a reasonably controlled fashion, it, it appeared that, you know, by hand surgical interventions provided equal or in many cases better outcomes. Um, so there, there are areas where cobotics, like in, in uh, in, in kidney and prostate surgeries really have been an advancement. So if I think about cobotics, uh, in some sense, the essence here is that some of the knowledge uh, that you have as an experienced surgeon at one of the finest neurosurgery departments in the country gets, gets codified and put into technology. Does it make the life of a, of a, of a neurosurgeon maybe in a second or third-year hospital does it basically in, improve their game because they can have they can benefit from some of Neil's techniques or knowledge pieces that are now sitting in part of the software and the robots? Uh, in robotics today, I would say no. In I, I think navigation, the first thing we the first technology we discussed, absolutely that has been a game changer for surgeons with less experience, less um, you know opportunity to train uh, uh, you know in, in smaller settings and in, in third world countries it, it's given them the capability to resect lesions that they historically might not have been able to resect and some of these lesions what we're, we're talking about here is the difference between mortality related to that cancer and a surgical cure so so I think that has absolutely expanded um, what what many of our colleagues have been able to do. What is the missing piece on the robotics, uh, the actual surgical intervention part as opposed to the, the, the guidance part? What, 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 is, what would be the breakthrough that is needed to make that one also transferable to the same degree? I wish I could tell you. To be honest, I think there's several pieces, and I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we need to be exploring it in a safe manner to provide patients um, better care. And I think it'll be uh, a long series of successes with cobotics, and then we will be able to move into the era of true robotics where we've seen there is benefit by the robot-assisted tools. Uh, what do you think is next for you the next five years? Is there like a big project that you're kind of in the process of wrapping up or getting I, launched? The two areas that I'm really most interested in is continuing to further the disc research, looking for a solution for disc degeneration. We know that everybody undergoes disc degeneration if we all lived to be 200, our spines would be metal rods from top to bottom because the, the degeneration is dramatic. So I'm, I'm developing injectable therapeutics to, to try to reverse that. I'd like to see a big advancement in the next five years, you know, consideration for FDA trials type of advancement. And in my, in my, in my clinical and clinical research quality work, I'd like to see dramatic advances in our capacity to predict the course of care for patients. You know, we talk about whether it's end-of-life care, um, elective care, if we could better predict for an individual patient. We know how populations do, but for an individual patient to be able to be told, hey, all patients like you who have had this problem um, and have your diabetes, your weight, your prior medical condition, so a person that looks just like you, this is how they do. Says Dr. Neil Malhotra. Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks so much for